Hey guys, the team here at Yap has reached a huge milestone. You may have heard of Yap Society on Slack. It's a community where our listeners go to network, share resources, chat with the guests that come on our show, and help us make decisions on the podcast. If you're already in Yap Society, we just launched a new referral program called Share the Wealth, where you can earn rewards like Yap mugs and t-shirts for inviting your friends to our new community. Check out youngandprofiting.com slash share the wealth to get started. Yap Society on Slack is sponsored by Compass HQ, a Slack app that gives insights to help your team work better together. Use Compass HQ to get detailed analytics, visualize communication patterns, and run surveys to collect input from your team. Visit compasshq.com to learn more. You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. I'm Halataha, and today we have a returning guest on the show, David Allen. You may remember him back from episode five, where he covered the steps of the GTD or getting things done system in great detail. If you want a refresher or never listened to that episode before, feel free to go back and check it out. This time around, we're yapping with David about general productivity principles, his thoughts on things like the law of attraction and Zen Buddhism, and how he became known as the GOAT or greatest of all time when it comes to productivity. Hey, David, welcome back to Young and Profiting Podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So you are the first guest that I've ever had to make a second appearance on Yap, and I'm pretty sure we're going to call this episode The Return of the Goat. (laughs) So you are most known for the five-step GTD or Getting Things Done system, which is a productivity methodology we covered in great detail back in episode five. We'll touch on that again, but this time I'm hoping we can focus the conversation more about your general productivity principles. And I also want to get a better understanding of who you are as a person and how you became the success that you are today. Does that sound okay? (laughs) Sure. Fine. Okay, so you've had a very fascinating life. It's a known fact that you've had 35 professions before the age of 35. You were a magician, a karate teacher, a cook, a travel agent, so many different titles, all seemingly unrelated. You're into New Age thinking and Zen Buddhism, and nobody would have guessed that you would become the business guru that you are today. So tell us, what was life like as a young adult for you? By the way, I would not have guessed I would <laughs> I would be doing this either. Trust me, you know. Believe me, if you know, I was an American intellectual history major in graduate school in Berkeley in 1968. And if you told me then I was going to wind up, you know, thousands of hours with executives and corporate training in some of the biggest companies in the world, I would have said, "What are you smoking? You know, come on, who, <laughs> what? That's not me." So yeah, it's been a very interesting path. In retrospect, I look back and I can see and say that there were some common themes that actually ran through all of that. But yeah, it's a long story. Again, at 73 years, <laughs> I've been graced with having just a ton of different experiences, which have been quite valuable in my life. Yeah. So why did you end up taking on so many different career paths? Was it hard for you to determine what your true calling was? How did you land on productivity? Oh, yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. For a while in college, I thought I was going to have an academic career. So I was a history major. And what else can you do as a major in history other than be in academia, maybe write or whatever. But then I started studying people who seemed to be enlightened, and then I got kind of hungry to find my own. And I didn't experience graduate school as a place that I could get that. This is the 1960s in California. So I decided to hop off and jump into personal growth, personal exploration, spiritual work, meditation, martial arts, all kinds of things, mostly to sort of explore God, truth, and the universe. You know, What was it that we couldn't see that seemed to be affecting all of us? So that was basically a common theme. As I look back, I couldn't have told you back then, but as I look back, my first job, and they weren't really professions, those 35, they were just different jobs that I added up. And my first job was actually being a magician at age five in (laughs) Palestine, Texas on the sidewalk. I charged a nickel for my magic show. Well, that's kind of interesting because I look back and go, well, magic was sort of the, gee, if you could kind of make things move without having to physically do it, wouldn't that be cool? You know, I'm Mr. Lazy, so I was always interested in trying to find out what were the key drivers of our experience and how to get a hold of those. Because if we could get a hold of those, and if they seem to be really affecting everything tremendously, I said, well, that'd be a neat thing to do, to be able to find out what that truth was. So it was really more of an inner exploration. But they're not paying 
people. I, you know, rice bowl and cave was not my style. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like good wine and good looking women and, you know, things like that. And I didn't want to kind of give up this world. But again, not knowing what to do as a profession or a career at that point, I just had to pay the rent. So it turned out I had a number of people that I knew and friends and so forth that seemed to know what they wanted to do. So they were starting their own businesses or running small businesses themselves. And so I just helped them out. I became a really good number two guy. I helped a couple of friends start a New Orleans style restaurant in West LA. I ran a vitamin distribution network for some friends. I had a good friend who ran a landscape company in San Fernando Valley, and I wound up sort of managing a lot of his crews. So I was just basically helping them, but I would just show up and look around and say, well, how much easier could we do this? Because I'm Mr. Lazy. Mm -hmm. I was always looking for how could we get stuff done with as little effort as possible. Now they call that process improvement, but I was just, hey, you know, come on, can we make this easier? And then I would make it easier in terms of their their systems and whatever they were doing, and then I'd get bored. <laughs> then I'd leave and go find something else that was more interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered they actually pay people to do that. They call them something, consultant. So 1981, I hung up my shingle, Allen Associates, and I started my own little consulting practice. I said, okay, well, let me see if I could just kind of sell myself on a project-by-project -project basis. So that's what I started to do. Also, I got very hungry to say, well, okay, if I'm going to be a consultant, it'd be nice to know what consultants do. Now, again, I'll be self-disclosing here. I've never had a traditional business psychology or time management course in my life. You know, all of my stuff was from experience. And just seeing what worked, what didn't work, you know, how could we work it better? And so I started looking for what are some models? Is there a procedure that in case it's not clear what I could do with a client or a customer to improve their situation, what if I had something in my back pocket I could pull out as a process that would improve their situation? So that was one vector that caused me to start looking for those kinds of things that were universal, no matter what the business was, no matter who it was. If they applied these principles or these techniques, it would improve their condition. At the same time, because of my inner work, I was very attracted to clear space. In the martial arts, particularly, a very practical reason, lots of really good techniques. Now they call it mindfulness, you know, focus on your breathing. But I did that 40 years ago in the martial arts because that's how you get present and clear your head. Four people jump you in a dark alley. You don't want 2,000 unprocessed emails banging around in your head. You need to be totally clear. So how do you get clear? So I loved the idea of clear. So a lot of those kind of things came together, and I, I wound up one of my first mentors in, as I started my consulting practice was a guy who'd been in the consulting business for quite a number of years. And he kind of took to me, and he wound up sharing a whole lot of his techniques with me, and we did several clients and work together. But he had come up with some stuff that helped executives that he worked with clear their head so they could focus on the organizational change they were interested in doing. Whereas if they were distracted and had a lot of old business hanging around, it's kind of hard for them to make those kind of changes. So Dean had come up with the technique of getting stuff out of your head and then deciding next actions on all those things that had your attention. And he did that process with me. And I wasn't in pain. I was a pretty organized guy. I kind of had my act together. But I said, well, okay, let me see what that process is. And he took me through that process. And I went, oh, my God, this is so wicked cool. Because it suddenly gave me a sense of clarity, a sense of stability, a sense of focus and control that I had never experienced before. So I went, well, that's really cool. So after then we were using that with clients. And then I turned around and started to use some of those same techniques with my clients. And it produced exactly the same results. More clarity, more space in their head, more focus, more control, more stability. So I went, whoa, that's really cool. And then at one point, head of human resources for you know, a big corporation, Lockheed, saw what I was doing. And he said, wow, David, those are the kind of results we need in our whole culture. Can you design a training program around this instead of just one-on-one -on -one sort of model that you're using in your consulting? So I said, okay. So I spent a couple of months and designed a two-day personal productivity training program. We did a pilot program for a 1,000 executives and managers at Lockheed, 1983 and 84, and it worked. It hit a nerve. Mm -hmm. Wow, they thought this was the best thing since sliced bread. I didn't know what I'd come up with. It just suddenly, it hit this nerve, and then I found myself thrust into the corporate training world. And that also forced me to hone what I had come up with and uncovered as a set of best practices into a more rigorous, well-defined sort of model, just so that we could do that in training seminars. So. That's kind of how it all started. But then it took me another 20 years to figure out what I'd figured out. Nobody else had done it and that it was unique and that it was bulletproof.
that's when I wrote the book, Getting Things Done. Mm. So it was a long process, literally thousands of hours. My coaching and my consulting really turned into one-on-one work with a lot of executives, senior people in these organizations that wanted to implement this methodology themselves personally. So that's where a lot of this experience came from. A lot of what I wrote in Getting Things Done and and the model itself really came from those many, many years and thousands of hours I spent just doing this work. Wow, that's very cool. Thanks for sharing that whole background. I hope I didn't bore everybody to tears. <laughs> no, that was great. You know what? I've been doing research on you and everybody always focuses on GTD, but I think it's important to understand how this even came about because there's lessons within that itself. So you earned a black belt in karate around your college years. You briefly mentioned your interest in martial arts and we spoke about how you're also interested in Zen Buddhism. So can you talk about how those interests help shape your perspective on productivity and maybe some of the core concepts involved with Zen Buddhism? Well, you know, I didn't go out to implement Zen and I'm not a rigorous practitioner of it. If mm-hmm. you know people who are real practitioners of Zen you know, that sit for hours and meditate and do all that good stuff, lovely stuff. I had read a lot of the Zen writings, you know, Alan Watson and Suzuki and, and those folks back in, when I was even in high school. So I've always been attracted to the aesthetic, which is sort of minimal stuff that transmits something rather interesting and powerful. My wife and I are big Japanophiles. I mean, we love that aesthetic of the simple and ordinary that's down to the simplest forms that have an elegance to them. And so I think I've always been attracted to that in a way. So maybe that's what helped a lot with me trying to just find what is the minimal amount of stuff you could do to be as organized as you need to be to give you the freedom you need. Because I'm a real freedom guy. And to me, a lot of people think that I'm an organizing freak. and I'm actually not. Ask my wife. I only get organized so that I don't have to rethink anything, you know, so that I'm so lazy. I like to not have my mind bothered with trying to remember and remind. So I'm organized just so that I get clear space. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, it's kind of like Zen or a lot of other people came up with the same conclusions I did. So it wasn't like trying to take that and put that into some form. I just did the form that was attractive to me. And then I looked around and go, wow, I guess there's a similarity there. Yeah. Okay, so let's spend a little bit of time for GTD. For all my listeners, in episode five, we went through this five-step process in great detail, but for those who haven't listened, could you give a high-level explanation of what GTD is? Sure. Well, it's about how do you keep yourself from being distracted in your mind? Because your mind did not evolve to remember, remind, or prioritize, or manage relationships between more than four things. We know now, given cognitive science research, that as soon as you try to keep track of five, six, seven, eight things in your head, not to mention the dozens, if not hundreds of things most people are trying to keep in their head, you're going to be driven by latest and loudest and not by strategy or intuitive intelligence. So the whole idea is being able to empty your head and then get all that into an external brain. So there are really five stages we all go through. You First of all, you capture stuff that has your attention, what's on your mind, write it down, and then you need to clarify, what does that mean? You wrote down, mom, what does that mean? Well, her birthday's coming. Well, what's the next step about that and what's the outcome you're committed to? So outcome and action are the two key things that most people still need to think about and decide about the things that have their attention. What's the action I need to take? If that won't finish, whatever this commitment is, what's the commitment? What's the project? So clarify is the step two. So I've captured stuff that has my attention. And then I start to clarify those things. What I'm going to do about that? What am I committed to finish about that? And then step three would be to organize that. If you can't do those activities right then, then you need to organize some reminder about them. What are all the errands you need to run? What are all the things you need to talk to your life partner about? What are all the things you need to do at your computer? What are all the websites you need to surf, et cetera? And so just then creating appropriate, for the most part, lists, reminders of work that you've already defined that you need to do, putting those in some appropriate trusted system, which is the organized step. So you capture, clarify, and then you organize your thinking in appropriate places. And then step four is to then make sure you're looking at your errands list when you go out for errands. (laughs) Make sure you're looking at all the 35 or 82 projects you have on some maybe weekly basis so that you make sure you're not letting something fall through the crack that's important. And that's step four is the reflect or review stage. Step five is then to engage. Once I've captured, clarified, organized, and reviewed all of these different commitments at these multiple levels, then if I decide to take a nap, if I decide to write a business plan, if I decide to you know, cook spaghetti or, you know, whatever the heck I decide to do. It's because I've looked at the whole game and said, this is the best thing to do right now for whatever reason. And so moving yourself into a trusted choice place 
that you're trusting what you're doing is really the end game of GTD. And just for everybody listening, GTD is the most popular productivity methodology out there. David has like a cult following. So he released this book, GTD, back in 2001. He's had another iteration of that. But if you're interested in that, go check out his book. Go check out episode five. So a little birdie told me that you're having a GTD summit in Amsterdam, June 20th and 21st. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is not something that we do regularly. As a matter of fact, we did an early version of this 10 years ago in San Francisco. By that time, the book was popular enough that I just had some really classy people that were champions of my work. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool to kind of raise the flag and have them show up and present just their own experience, their own points of view and so forth, and then see who's interested in the GTD world out there. And we had about 30 presenters and we had about 350 people showed up. And it was really quite a unique event. The people attracted to GTD are fascinating. The people that need it the least, they're some of the most already productive and positive and aspirational people you'd ever meet. And so a good friend of mine said, David, don't do another one of these. This was such a unique event. So I agreed. I said, no, I don't want to do another one of these. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Put all that together. So I didn't. But then fast forward, you know, come on. But that was 10 years ago. Now, in the last 10 years, we've partnered with licensees and franchisees all around the world and certified master trainers for this work. So this is the GTD movement is quite a global movement out there right now. And I said, at 73, I'm probably not ever going to do another one of these, but maybe it's time to kind of bring all the troops together, raise the flag again, and kind of see who salutes. And Amsterdam, my adopted city, is just such a great place for these kinds of events. It's such a global city and such an open and very productive place to begin with. So it's a perfect place to have this. And so we've got people now coming from all over the world. My first invitation to my sort of A-list of people that might be interesting as presenters, we got oversubscribed almost right away. <laughs> These people are coming on their own dime. They just wanted to come hang out and participate and give their thanks for how much this has affected. And it's such a broad range of people, everybody from Marshall Goldsmith, who's probably the top executive leadership coach in the world to Katie Coleman, who is one of the first women astronauts, you know, who's a huge GTD fan. She was even coached by one of our GTD coaches while she was on the space station. Just all kinds of people from all over the world, actually. So we expect to have maybe a thousand folks in an absolutely fabulous place in the northwest of downtown Amsterdam. So I'm excited about it and sort of terrified about it. It's like a lot of work to pull it all together, but it's already coming together pretty fast. Very cool. So anybody who's interested, it'll be a one-time event, believe me, that'll be quite memorable. Yeah. So you just mentioned about your guest speakers, and that's one of the things that intrigued me. It's the diversity of all your guests. So you have this former NASA astronaut, a singer, some authors, a U.S. major general, and you know everybody connects with a good story. So can you walk us through how some of these people have used GTD and maybe some of the results that they got from it? Wow. I I should really leave that to them, you know, to tell those stories. I'm afraid I couldn't do it justice, but well, I mentioned Katie getting coached while she was, we had to stop the coaching when she got on the other side of the planet because we lost communication. So she had to wait till she came back around to keep going with it. Randy Fullhart, he's a retired now major general in the U.S. Air Force. Randy, he's now running the cadet program at the University of Virginia. And he has used this for years for all of his subordinates in the military and made sure that getting things done was a book every one of them had. He brought me into Maxwell Air Force Base to do keynote speeches for officer training there. So Randy's just a huge, huge, huge fan of this. Made a huge difference in his life to do that. Brian Robertson, who's you know one of the founders of the Holacracy movement in terms of new self-organizing organizational systems. And Brian came across GTD and he kind of got religion to that. And it inspired him to say, well, how can I make an organization sort of have a mind like water and a clear head? And then he wound up developing, you know, something that I've been using, you know, for the last seven or eight years, which is an organizational model called Holacracy. And Brian's there as long with his partner, Tom Thomason, who's now got a company called Encode, which is sort of restructuring how power works in organizations in terms of how do you work with the legal and financial and compensation, all that kind of aspects of having a self-organizing organization. I could go on and on. I mean, any one of those people, Ove Kenneth Nelson is one of the top performers in Norway and Scandinavia, producing movies, producing music videos. He also is a teacher of the Brazilian martial arts, and he runs the largest 
GTD meetup group in the world in Oslo. And he would tell you this just opened his creative spaces like crazy. Well, you must be really proud that your system has impacted so many different people. I've been really graced to have uncovered something. It was a long time coming. I mean, come on. You know, I was in my late 30s before I actually figured out what I might actually start going to do in my life. (laughs) So anybody out there any younger than that's wondering about it, relax. you got a lot of time. That's good (laughs) advice. Yeah, just kind of let it emerge as it emerges. But I've been very graced to have something that does no harm sort of Google-esque in that way. There's absolutely no harm done with anybody gets any of this methodology. And you don't have to implement the whole thing. You can implement any part of it. If you just keep a pen and paper by your bed at night, you'll sleep better. Any one thing that you might implement out of this methodology will help you feel more clear, more relaxed, more focused. So it's been wonderful to be able to do that and also then have this incredible network of people now globally around the world that are attracted to it and have become part of this network. Yeah. So I read that there's going to be two main themes at the event, and I thought that both of them would be great discussion points. Mm -hmm. So the first is the strategic value of clear space, and the second is there are no problems, only projects. So let's break these down, starting with the strategic value of clear space. Now, this is fundamental to GTD. It's something you always talk about. I've heard you say in one of your books that productivity is directly proportional to one's ability to relax. You preach that your mind is for having ideas, not for holding them, and you advocate for a mind like water. So tell us more about the importance of clear space. What do you mean when you say mind like water? And what's your best advice for achieving a clear head and a relaxed mind? Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who wanna try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you wanna make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Yap fam. Starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full-time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, And she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play. Her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. 
And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, all of that could be wrapped together to say be present. A lot of the mindfulness stuff these days is just about how do you get present? How do you keep yourself from running into the future or regretting the past? How do you get present? That's why focusing on your breathing is a key element for that kind of practice. It wasn't for me, the martial arts as well, because your breathing is present. If you could just focus on your breath, you're not in the past, you're not in the future, you're right here, right now. And that happens to be the most productive state to be in. It's the best state to hit a golf ball from, best state to cook spaghetti from, best state to have a difficult conversation from if you need to do that is to not have your brain distracted or pulled away, that you have essentially all of your cognitive resources available to you in the moment for where you want to put it. So you can't have nothing on your mind if you're conscious, but what you want is to have what you want on your mind on your mind and not have it distracted by 60,000 other things that are likely to pull you away. And most people are not that aware, frankly, of how many things are potentially distracting to them. And you really won't find that out until you actually go through the GTD process and unload everything that's got your attention, little, big, personal, or professional, and get it out of your head. It creates quite a different experience for most people once they actually do that. And then building into practice so that that becomes your normal state. A lot of people get into their zone, but they don't know kind of how they got there, and then they fall out of it and don't know how to get back into it again. But being in your zone, that is where you're totally present, there's no difference between work or play just what's next, Mm -hmm. right? So there's no distinction about work-life balance. It's just balance, period. You know, because balance may be working 23 hours of a day. Maybe that's what you need to do in order to get clear. Who knows? So GTD doesn't tell you what your content should be. I think what's unique about GTD is that it focuses on where you are, not with where you should be. Because if you can't handle where you are, and if where you are is somewhat out of control or unstable, Trying to focus on where you want to go or what things you should be doing is just going to create more guilt and frustration. So getting control of where you are, getting clear where you are, is going to open up a lot more space to be able to focus on the more meaningful things that are more meaningful to you. And you could do this from an artistic or creative standpoint. You know, we have a lot of the people in the creative industries that would tell you that GDD was absolutely critical. I mean, people who've made public their championing of GTD are people like Will Smith and Robert Downey Jr. and Howard Stern. These are all big champions of my stuff. And of course, they're all running, you know, rather significant business enterprises Mm -hmm. in addition to their artistic and creative endeavors. So opening up space and just being clear, nice place to be, you know, and, and, you know, once you taste it, 
if you're like me, you just do whatever you need to do to get back there. Yeah. So what do you mean exactly when you say mind like water? Well, that's a metaphor that's from the martial arts. I think Bruce Lee's sensei was the one who gave that to him. And the idea is water looks like it's kind of weak, but it's very powerful once it's harnessed in the right way. And also water doesn't overreact or underreact. It's totally appropriately engaged with its environment. It may be rushing, it may be a calm pond, whatever it is, it's not confused. So the analogy then is, is your mind clear enough that you're not over or underreacting? Are you taking one meeting into the next in your mind? Or are you taking home to work in your mind or work to home in your mind? Then you're not in a really a mind like water state. If you're going to the soccer game to watch your girl play soccer, but you're on your smartphone because you're distracted by all that stuff, come on, how unpresent are you? <laughs> you know. And some of the most dramatic testimonials we have are from parents that went, oh my God, I can actually watch my kids play soccer and not be on my phone. How cool is that? So all of those are just examples or just different lenses at looking at being clear and being present. Okay. So you're all about, you know, clearing your head, having nothing on your mind so you could be mindful and present in the moment. How about your external environment? What do you feel about organizing and decluttering your external environment? I know something really popular right now is the KonMari method. Have you ever heard of that? Sure. Yeah. You know, you can't fault that. Your car is going to drive better if you clean your trunk. You know, <laughs> it's, there's just something psychological about having sort of clean and clear space. If you play golf, it's nice to have your golf clubs clean. If you paint, it's nice to have your paintbrushes organized and your painting table clean and neat. If you're trying to be a top chef, mise en place, you know, the French chefs, you know, there's a whole book about that. Basically, before they start, they get everything clean. Everything is cleaned and cleared up because it's going to get crazy. In a way, your most creative time is when you have the freedom to make a mess. But if you're in a mess, you can't make one. Mm. That said, I know a lot of people with a clean desk that have a very cluttered head. And I know people with a cluttered desk that have a very clear head. So there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation between lack of clutter and a clear head. Mm. Generally speaking, I'd say yeah, for sure. Catherine, my wife and I tend to not keep books around once we've read them. We turn them back into the used bookstore. Whenever we buy new clothes, we try to get rid of old ones, mm -hmm. you know, so that we keep it in kind of a lean footprint. And I think that's healthy. Certainly one of the biggest industries out there is the storage industry because people are just accumulating crap like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't think that's necessarily ecologically sound uh, and even psychologically. Yeah, I think that this idea of KonMari is sort of like the external version of what you do for the mind. So if somebody were to pair up both, you'd be in probably a very good situation. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't push up against anything you didn't want to get rid of. See, I don't tell people to throw stuff away. If they have attention on it, they threw it away and they said, yeah, but what if I need that? Keep it. I have a rule of thumb. When in doubt, throw it out. And when in doubt, keep it. <laughs> yeah. Take your pick. There's no right or wrong about that. Sometimes if you throw stuff away that you didn't want to throw away, you'll have more attention on that. You know, so you have to be careful. And most people, for sure, everybody probably involved has a lot of old stuff that at some point was useful where it is. But now if you get rid of it, you know, it opens up more space to think and be more creative. Yeah. So let's talk about this second theme for your upcoming event in Amsterdam. You talk about there are no problems, only projects. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that's a toughie for a lot of people because a lot of things show up as problems. But you only consider something a problem if you assume that it can be fixed or should be fixed or improved. So you didn't wake up this morning probably and say, gee, gravity really sucks. It's really terrible. It's killing people and it's causing body parts to sag, right? Because that's what gravity does. Mm -hmm. But nobody really complains about gravity because you know you can't do anything about it. So what do you do with gravity? You accept it, ignore it, or play with it, which is what we do with gravity. So the things that people tend to complain about, things that are bothering them, there's something off, there's something whatever, it just means, okay, well, what would you like to have true about that? And, oh, well, I got a problem with my neighbor, and they're complaining about that we planted a tree too close to the... Well, what would you like to have true? Well, I'd like to get this resolved with my neighbor. Fabulous. Now you have a project. You know, optimize resolution with neighbor relative to tree. All right? Like, great. And then what's the next action? Oh, God, what is the next thing? And so what most people do, they're using complaining as a way to avoid hopping the driver's seat and actually doing something about the things that have their attention that they think ought to change. So this is really a tough admonition, okay, because it gets pretty subtle. 
you know, should I get divorced or not? How do I handle my mom's elder care that's showing up out there that we need to manage? How do we deal with this debt thing that we're trying to resolve? You know, whatever. And those things become pretty subtle. You need to say, okay, what's my desired outcome? What's the, see, outcome and action are the zeros and ones of productivity. What are we trying to accomplish? And how do we allocate or reallocate our resources and our focus to move the needle toward getting resolution on that? So all it is is just making sure people hop in the driver's seat, you know, about all that stuff. And it makes a huge difference. We do in our training programs, our second level of GTD trainings that we do, you know, worldwide has a lot to do with focused on getting people to really identify the things that really ought to be identified as projects Mm. for their project list. It's quite powerful when they do. Yeah, cool. That sounds very interesting. I think both topics that you're centered on are really important, meaty topics, and it should be a great event. So let's get into some more general productivity themes. The first one is pretty much fundamental to everything you teach. It's your bottoms up philosophy to productivity. Many productivity methodologies are top down. So they start with really deep thinking. They focus on values, really big goals, and stress the management of our priorities. But you say spending too much time at the top won't get us anywhere and that we need to master the mundane. What's your argument for that? Well, as I said earlier, what this methodology does, it starts with where you are, not where you should be. If where you are is at these high horizons, absolutely, we'll start there. Wow, I am trying to figure out what to do with my life and my career. Fabulous. You know, what would your desired outcome be? And what's your next action? So it's not that we only deal with the mundane. It's just that if you don't tie whatever your thinking is to the mundane, then it's just blue sky stuff. And, you know, it's not grounded. And so we tend to start with where people are. I guarantee you, by the way, we've trained thousands and thousands of people around the world. And one of the exercises is actually initially in the first seminars is to get people to actually empty their head and just write all the stuff that's got their attention. And (laughs) it's funny. Oftentimes I ask, I say, how many of you in the first 10 things you wrote down wrote fulfilled destiny as human spirit on the planet? And everybody laughs. That's not what they wrote down. They wrote down, get a new babysitter. They wrote down, tires of my car. They wrote down, hire the vice president. They wrote down, increase my credit line. They wrote down, deal with mom's birthday. That's where they are. So that's where we start. No matter how sophisticated or subtle or high up the horizon is that you're focused on, your strategic plan, your life purpose, your core values, your short-term goals, your job description, the areas in your life that you want to maintain, you know, all those are appropriate commitments to identify We just tend to start with where you are, so you get control of that, and then you're able to then lift to any higher horizon much more easily with a clearer head. Okay, so while GTD is a bottoms-up approach, you just mentioned that you you don't always start from there, and you're actually a strong proponent of visioning. So how does visioning work with a bottoms-up approach? Can you share with us some best practices for visioning and outcome thinking that you've acquired over the years? Well, how would you like this interview to wind up? How would you like lunch today? You know, how would you like to sleep tonight? How would you like your conversation to go? So we're outcome thinking all the time. That's how you get dressed. That's how you walk out of the room, right? You see yourself out of the room and then you, you know, match your picture. So we're doing this all the time. It's not something new. You know, you're visioning essentially all of your self-talk are kind of pictures you're giving yourself and you're talking to yourself. I am too, about 50,000 times a day. I have no idea how they counted that, but, you know, that's a lot. So you you can't stop, essentially, focusing on something. So whatever you're focused on has a lot of power to it. So when we're talking about visioning or affirmational thinking or ideal scenes and those kinds of things, it's just saying, okay, let me structure the advertisements that I'm giving myself in my own head. So it's kind of like writing your own billboard. You're looking at billboards when you drive down the street anyway. Why don't you write your own? Mm -hmm. So I just discovered that. Back in 1981, I think, was when I ran across those models, the affirmational model. And I've been using them ever since. They, most of my life got created with drafting out and crafting some sort of a vision of how I'd like things to be, even though I had no idea how to get there. But describing the there was the first step. So speaking of affirmations, in your second book, you say a change in focus equals a change in results. An infinite number of things in the universe are held back from you only by your altitude and your attitude. So this led me to believe that you believe in the law of attraction. So what are your thoughts on that concept? I couldn't agree with myself more. (laughs) That actually does work. It's kind of like you don't get what you need. You get what you put out, which actually is what you need. Because, you know, the universe is designed to give you feedback based upon the choices you're making and the focus that you have. 
and you'll learn from that. But learning how to craft that so you can kind of take control of it as opposed to just being driven by latest and loudest in your life, it works. If the results you're getting is absolutely fine, then don't worry. You're fine. If you want something different or something new or something expanded, then good idea to sit down and say, what would that look, sound, or feel like if I had that? And then see what happens. Can you talk a little bit about how energy attracts like energy? Well, I think it does. A good example, I mean, who do you take the most expensive presents to when you go to housewarmings and parties? The people who need them the most? I don't think so. You say, wow, they have a real nice house and lots of expensive things. We have to give them some more. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Well, they've sort of created their entry price. I mean, why don't you take all those cool gifts you're going to give them and give the money to people who really need it? You don't do that. People tend to attract. Whatever they're putting out tends to be what they will tend to attract. And that's what people around them will tend to bring to them. So if you're an uplifted person, positively focused, you'll find the people doing that around you. It's kind of like you create your own barrier or you create your own entry price. That's why there are people in the corporate world, the organizational world out there, there are people who you know you won't walk into their office without your act together because their act is well together. Right. So, you know, but you walk into somebody's out of control, unfocused, got clutter all over the place, you'll drop some of yours there. I mean, where do you drop a gum wrapper? On a clean lawn or one where there's lots of gum wrappers already? Yeah. You know, that's why Disney, I heard years ago, Disney would fire any of their employees that passed a gum wrapper on the ground without picking it up because they found it was so much cheaper and took so much less energy to keep it absolutely clean because then people don't throw stuff on the ground. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting. And support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So there are lots of examples, I think, of where like attracts love. Very cool. Okay, so the next one is centered around focus. You give the analogy of putting things at the front door so you don't forget. So, for example, if you're about to go on an international trip, you'll probably put your passport and important things at the front door so there's no chance you'll miss it. So how does this analogy relate to our minds and the assurance that we get the most important things done? Well, put them in front of the door. It's just not the door of your house, but it's the door of your mind. What do you need to look at to orient yourself before the board meeting? What do you need to look at? What are the things you need to overview or think about or put in front of your face before you spend the weekend with your family? What are the things you need to look at? Basically, they're just maps. So orienting maps that orient you in space and time. If you or anybody listening to this has looked at your calendar in the last two or three days, you already did that. You looked at a calendar, which lifted you up to see things from a little higher perspective locate yourself in space and time. 
So it's just those things. And so there's an infinite number of checklists that you could have, travel checklists, any recipe that you'd cook with is a checklist. All of those things are just help you orient because your mind is really a bad office and is really terrible at remembering and reminding, you know, until it becomes just totally habitual where you don't have to think about it. But until then, boy, I need checklists. I have dozens. And so any of those kind of things that help your brain relax and know that when it's in a certain context, it will be reminded of the right things at the right time. It lets it relax. Got it. And one of the other things that you often talk about is the need to do the best you can in the moment. So what's your advice on understanding what the best thing we could be working on right now is? Just listen to yourself. You know, what's the best thing for me to be saying right now? And again, I made the point when I wrote that essay is that trying to be the best, you're trying to be at your best, right? And so, you know, if you're just learning to cook spaghetti, you know, how good can I be at my beginning spaghetti mix or sauce, you know, (laughs) and you just want to be conscious. It's really more just about being clear and being conscious about whatever it is that you're doing, you know, is probably going to be at your best. And at your best, maybe, what's the best nap I could have right now? What's the best way I could tuck my boy in at night when he goes to sleep? What's the best thing that I could be doing? And it's just a great little trigger and reminder that you don't have to hold yourself up to a standard of anybody else out there, just your own. And you've got your plenty. So one of the things that you actually get some pushback on with GGD is that some people say it's not conducive to getting into a creative state. But then you hear other sides of the coin where people say it's great for getting into creative state. So can you talk about some of your you know, tips and tricks for getting creative and maybe some best practices when it comes to brainstorming and when it comes to creating something specific? Yeah, well, I mentioned a bunch of them already. I mean, it's the, it's the French chef mise en place, you know, get organized, get yourself out of a mess so you have the freedom to make a mess. Mm-hmm. Those are key elements to it. And we're all being creative all the time. You're producing what you're experiencing all the time. We can't stop being creative. I use the example. I say, well, what do you think about the line down the middle of the road out there? You know, is that a constraint or does that allow you more freedom? So I think you only need to get as organized as you need to be so that it optimizes your freedom. So maybe that's yin and yang. I don't know the best way to describe that model. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like Einstein says, you need to get things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Right. So <laughs> you want to get your life as simple as possible, but you need to have it organized appropriately to match the complexity of what you're engaged in out there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my system has changed over the years just because uh, my life is a little less complex than it was 20 years ago. But I still have the same principles that I still apply. But I plan as little as I can get by with. And then putting yourself in a context where you start to trigger creative thinking also is a big key. I started acrylic painting about a year ago. So I'm staring at now a, a blank canvas in front of me right now as I look at it. And this sort of challenges me. Okay, David, what's next? But I have it there. So again, it's like putting it in front of the door. It's just a, you know, a creative door. Well, I think it was Picasso who said, Inspiration is for amateurs. If you really want to paint, just sit down and friggin' paint. <laughs> you know, don't wait to be inspired. You know, in other words, write, butt in chair, boot computer, hit key. <laughs> so any good writer will tell you ultimately that's where the creativity comes from, is getting engaged. So oftentimes you just need to put yourself in a situation that makes it easy to engage before trying to just wait till you're motivated. Got it. Cool. Okay. So the last question we're going to ask before you go is about productivity blockers. So interruptions are, you know, one of the worst productivity blockers. They slow us down by an average of 23 minutes each time they happen, according to science. Mm -hmm. And it can take longer if an interruption has made us upset or excited. And one of your mottos is how ready for ready are you? So can you talk about why it's important for us to be able to refocus quickly and maybe some of your tips and tricks to reduce the amount of time it takes to be ready to work on the next thing after an interruption? Well, there are no interruptions. They're just mismanaged inputs. You either should not be getting the interruption because it's not something that's important to you. Or you should, because it is something you're committed to do in terms of either your job or you're committed to, you know, respond and communicate, you know, with people who are communicating with you. If you're in customer service, you know, or an IT consultant, you know, internally in a company, believe me, you're going to get interrupted all the time. And that's your job. The problem is is that people get interrupted 
And if you can't finish whatever it is that you're being interrupted about right then, and you haven't got a system for placeholding that thing so that you could leave it and then come back to it later on, then some part of you feels like I have to go do that. But now you get all pissed off because you feel like that's not what I should be doing, but you're going and doing it because you don't trust your system to manage it. So if you came in and said, hey, David, could you do X, Y, and Z? If I'm doing other things, I'll make a little note or ask you, hey, send me a text or send me an email about that. I don't have the attention that it deserves right now, you know, but I'll get to it. But you have to trust that I trust <laughs> that I'll get to it. So once you're actually in that state, you can switch tasks much more easily because your brain is not wrapped around the thing once you leave it. You've got a placeholder for it. So that's what kind of being ready for ready is really all about. That's why when I'm not doing anything else, of course, I'm cleaning up my in-baskets and my backlog to zero because there, it, there is a surprise coming toward me, stuff I don't expect, good, bad, indifferent, I don't know, but it's coming. And so when that hits, I want as little backlog as possible in terms of uncaptured, unclarified stuff mm-hmm. so that I can evaluate the new situation from a much clearer space about whether to spend time on it whether to put a place mark on it or whether to just ignore it. So it's a lot easier to navigate those kind of things if you've got the sack together. Yeah. But when you're like upset about something, like how does that change how we should act towards it? Because I think that's the most difficult is when something makes you upset. Yeah. Well, then let's go back to no, there are no problems, only projects. <laughs> Why are you upset? What do you want to have true? What's your desired outcome? It may not be easy, but you know, if you're upset, it just means you want something to be different than it currently is. So what would different look like? Great. What's your next step? What do you need to do about it? Your emotions are much more driven by your mental thinking than the other way around. Hmm. If you get engaged, you don't have to like your life to get it off your mind. But it turns out that if you do start to get in the driver's seat about these things that are either upsetting you or bothering you or that you consider problems, then you'll find it's a very different world. Awesome. Well, I think that is exceptional advice. Thank you so much. So it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I hope to meet you out in June in person for your events. So looking forward to that. And hopefully we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Follow Yap on Instagram at Young and Profiting and check us out at youngandprofiting.com. And now you can chat live with us every single day on Yap Society on Slack. Check out our show notes or youngandprofiting.com for the registration link. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team for another successful episode. This week, I'd like to give a huge shout out to Timothy Tan and Julian for launching our Share the Wealth referral program and our audio engineer, Danny McFadder, for her hard work in getting our episodes turned around every single week. Until next time, this is Hala signing off.